Genealogy Toolkit, where I offer short but hopefully helpful tips for the new genealogist to avoid some of the common errors that people make when getting started. Last week we talked about where to start and the importance of building off on what you already know rather than jumping straight into the unknown. At some point, though, you're going to want to make that jump because that's where all the fun is. For most of us, that first step into the unknown occurs as we look at a document from the U.S. Federal Census. I remember when I first got started in genealogy almost 15 years ago, the first historic document I accessed was the 1930 U.S. Federal Census for my grandfather. Both my grandfathers passed before I was born, so although I'd heard plenty of stories about both of them, I didn't really know much. It was an interesting feeling, seeing my grandfather's name slowly getting clearer on the screen as the image downloaded, and then there he was, with his sister and his parents, his, his family. As my eyes drifted across the page, I was a little overwhelmed by all the information that seemed to be available. Ages, birth locations, employment, and more for for some reason, as I was looking at the employment section, my eyes drifted up on the rows to my grandfather's neighbors. One of the adult children of the neighbor had his occupation listed as radio dealer. Now, I know that my grandfather was an amateur or ham radio operator, and I knew that at least for a time, he had served as a radio dispatcher for the police department. As I sat there in the library looking at those words, radio dealer, I started to fabricate in my mind a, a question. I wondered if he'd gotten into radios because of the neighbor. I'll never know the answer to that question, but I was immediately hooked on the census. It had so many answers and offered so many interesting questions as well. Just like you're going to want to do, I saw the name of my grandfather's father. Again, a name that I'd maybe heard in a story somewhere, but I knew absolutely nothing about him and I wanted to know more. So I quickly forgot about researching about my grandfather, and I wanted to find an older census that had my great-grandfather in it with his family. But I was making a mistake. Remember the first episode, it always applies, no matter how much experience you have. Start with what you know. I hadn't learned everything that I could learn about my grandfather yet. Sometimes you can safely census hop, like I described, but it will eventually bite you, and you'll end up identifying the wrong parent for your ancestor and everything else from that point on will be incorrect. So remember, start with what you know. But that was last episode. Let's learn some more about the U.S. Federal Census. The Census is a federal government responsibility almost as old as the Constitution itself. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution covers how the U.S. House of Representatives is to be composed. As we hopefully learned in our high school civics class, the House of Representatives provides representation proportional to the population of the state. The census is the mechanism by which the government officially counts the population of each state to determine how many representatives each state is allowed in Congress. The population changes over time, though, so the census is performed every 10 years. You maybe remember getting a letter just a few years ago during the pandemic. You had to go online and enter in a bunch of information on a website about who lived with you. That was the U.S. Federal Census. And one day, many years from now, someone will probably be looking at that information you entered as they try to solve the puzzle of who they are and where they come from. The first census was taken in 1790, 
and it's been taken every 10 years since, like clockwork. The only census that is largely unavailable is the 1890, which was almost entirely lost in a fire at the U.S. Department of Commerce building in 1921. Interestingly, most of the records didn't actually burn. They were drowned in the waters used to put out the fire. You will likely find yourself shaking your fist in frustration over this fact more than once. But 22 out of 23 censuses being available ain't bad. You'll quickly find that every census year resulted in a different set of records. The information on the 1800 census and the information on the 1900 census differed significantly. The early censuses from 1790 through 1840 really honed in on the whole purpose of the census, counting people. For example, the 1790 census of my six-times great-grandfather only listed his name as the head of household and indicated that there were three white males over the age of 16, three white males under the age of 16, and two white females of any age, and two slaves. And other than listing the county and state that he lived in, that's pretty much it. Whereas when I look at the 1900 census for my great-grandfather, there's much more information there than I care to list. But it's a gold mine of data. Prior to 1850, only the head of household was listed by name. Everyone else was either a tick mark in a column or a number. From 1850 on, every member of the household, related or unrelated, was listed by name. This is really what makes the census such a fantastic source for genealogical work. As a general rule, censuses provide more information the more current they are, but there are some exceptions to that. If you look at the show notes, I'll provide some links to blank example census documents for each census year. When I was getting started, I found it useful to have those blank documents to quickly reference and see what sort of information I could get in each year, but after you get doing this for a while, you'll have a pretty good idea of what information each census is going to provide. There is more to the census than just what we usually use, which are known as the population schedules. Depending on the year, there were different schedules that collected a wide range of information. At various times, there have been up to 11 different schedules, from agricultural ones listing acres owned and crops and livestock, to the slave schedules, listing the number of people enslaved by the reporting individual. So don't limit yourself to just the population schedule, or you'll miss out on a lot of information. Speaking of information, what information do you want to copy down from the census document? All of it. And really, that's true of any source you're working with, but I think a common mistake new genealogists make, particularly with the census, is just looking at what you might call the key data. The names, relationships, ages, and occupations of your ancestors. If you stop there, you might be missing out on information that will help you with brick walls that you encounter later on. Write down for each individual where they were born, where their parents were born, can they read, write, did they own or rent their home, were they in school during the year, what day was the census taken, are there codes listed in some of the columns. You can find out what those codes mean. Sometimes they're just tabulation shortcuts for information that's already listed, but sometimes those codes are additional information. Make note of their neighbors. Something that you can't necessarily do for some of the 1800 census, which was done in some places alphabetically, but think about the document as showing a snapshot in time of your ancestor's neighborhood. If your ancestors lived in a large apartment complex in New York City, 
they maybe didn't even know the names of their neighbors, but if they lived in Wingo, Kentucky, they probably broke bread with those neighbors. They maybe even intermarried with those neighboring families. These documents are absolute gold mines, so don't leave out any nuggets. To help avoid the mistake of leaving valuable information, make sure to head over to IPUMS USA for tons more information about what you can learn from a simple census sheet. I'll leave a link in the show notes, but here you can find what instructions the enumerators received for filling out the census forms. The enumerators were the people charged with actually going out and contacting everyone to get the information. They were the people who stood on your ancestor's doorstep and wrote down the answers to all the questions. Wouldn't you like to know what their orders were? Say you were looking at a 1920 census, and you see the house number for your ancestors listed as 517 Rear. That would strike me as odd. Usually you just see a number, or, or sometimes FM, indicating a, it's a non-numbered farm. If you look at the instructions for the enumerators, though, you'd see that Rear indicates that the house had no number and was behind House 517. This can happen when you have a property with more than one structure on it. Some people call it like a, a mother-in-law's house. Either way, it would indicate to me that there is a potential relationship between my family in 517 Rear and whatever family lives in House 517. It's definitely something I would want to look into. So in summary, record everything in your records and, and even save a copy of the image assuming that you're using one of the major online services. Even if you don't know what the information means now, if you record it, you can always find out later. It's frustrating to have to re-find a source to check on something, but we'll go more into that as a fundamental principle later. Now, the real power of this census for me comes when you start cross-referencing multiple censuses for the same individual. Think of it as watching little Timmy grow up. Sometimes, it's just as simple as opening up all the census images and looking at each of them to see that, yes, the, the family is in the same spot you'd expect, the ages are increasing in the right way, and so on. Sometimes, it helps to break out a spreadsheet and list some of the key information from year to year, especially when there are some minor differences. See, census enumerators weren't perfect. They had to record a lot of information, and their accuracy sometimes left a bit to be desired. As you look across the census years and you see an age irregularity, is it close? And are all the other key information, like location, parents, and sibling names, the same? It's probably a mistake. Is one or two siblings missing and there's another sibling that isn't on any of the other documents? You might have misidentified your family on one of the censuses. As an example, on the street that I grew up on, there were three families with my last name. The heads of households of those three families were Rob, Ron, and Ronnie. Each of those families had kids a few years apart from each other. Thankfully, all of us kids had different names, but if one of those families had a few kids with the same or similar names as another, then it would be very easy to confuse the two. You won't catch that if you aren't cross-referencing censuses. You may also miss key information about your ancestor's life. Did they have a sister who died in her early teens? That's the kind of tragedy that can really leave a mark on a person, and I'd like to know something like that about my family. Cross-referencing can also help when you're dealing with a situation where a census document looks for all the world to be about your ancestor. But the person who should be your ancestor has the wrong name. The location is right, 
the parents' and siblings' names are right. But you were looking for a Thomas Sinclair, and he's nowhere to be found. But there is an Edward Sinclair of the same age, and with the same expected relationship to the head of household. But without cross-referencing, you might think it's the wrong family. But you did cross-reference, so you did see that the only unexpected item is your ancestor's name. Now, you can't just assume anything at this point. You'll need to look into other sources to confirm. But now, when you see Thomas Sinclair's marriage record, where he's listed as Thomas E. Sinclair, you'll know what the E stands for. If you do this enough, you'll start to pick up on some regional tendencies as it pertains to naming conventions. One of the things that I've noticed is in the American South, and Southeast more specifically, it's very common for men to frequently go by their middle names. They'll usually list their actual first names on formal records, but sometimes it seems like they forgot. There's a lot more I could probably say about the census and how to use it, but this episode is getting a little long, and I want to keep it around the 10-minute mark. I'm going to overshoot from time to time, and that's okay, but I don't want to make them too long because I don't want you listening to me. I want you out there researching. So grab a beverage of your choice and go dig into some of those census sources and see if you've missed anything. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.